Good morning, y'all. My name is Rich, and I am a member here at Urban Village and also a campus pastor at the University of Illinois at Chicago. It's great to be uh, with y'all and to be preaching this morning. Um, it's always good to be with you folks. Uh, Carter, thanks again for your testimony. Uh, just as good, second time around. Uh, I apologize for the Minnesotan, Minnesotans that he offended with that loon comment. <laughs> if you're from Minnesota, Minnesotans worship loons. Uh, all of you do, I know. But uh, that was beautiful about uh, finding God and hearing God in the midst of, of creation, of creation testifying to the grand Jordan beauty of God. Um, the last, the, all the lines of the poem, the last one, uh, you let me learn to trust you and still let me be a damn fool. All of it, beautiful, deep, uh, lots of layers. So thanks for sharing with us this morning. Uh, as we enter into this time, will you pray with me? God, we give you thanks uh, for this morning and in these moments. May the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts and daydreams and wonderings of all of us in this place be uh, pleasing and acceptable and aligned with who you are and who you want us to be. Amen. Some of y'all may have heard me tell this story before, but uh, you'll hear it again. So um, I went to uh, undergrad at a small Southern Baptist uh, institution in Birmingham, Alabama, and we had lots of like rituals and traditions there, and you do some of the same things every year and that kind of thing. And one of the rituals we had, traditions we had, was that at the end of every semester, all the students, or a large majority of the students, hundreds of us, would go to the quad, the green, grassy, beautiful quad, and we would have a commissioning service. And at this service, um, it was basically the last thing that we would do before final exams. And so we'd go out there and we would do things similar to we do here. We'd sing some songs and there would be a sermon and maybe even a testimony and there'd be prayer. And then at the end of the service, it was the same every year. And the campus minister would stand up and he would uh, invite a true groups of people to stand up with him and be prayed for at different times. So at my school, it was really common for students to either be uh, church interns or summer missionaries. They would go and do like some sort of mission project for a month or two for short term during the summers. And so at this commissioning service, he would uh, invite all the church interns, of which I was one usually, to stand up, and he would pray a prayer blessing over us as we were going to go uh, launch into that ministry over the summer. And then we would sit down, and he would tell all the summer missionaries to stand up, and they would stand up, and he would pray a prayer blessing over them, and then uh, launch them out. And then they would sit down, and then we'd sing maybe a couple more songs, and that would be the end of the service. And, you know, I never really thought much about this practice. I was getting prayed for, so that was nice. Uh, and I didn't think about, are we leaving anyone out? Are we missing anything? Is this practice uh, not as full, as expansive, as inclusive as it could be? And I never thought about that until after one year when my best friend Bo was sitting by me, and at the end of the service, he said to me, I wish they would have prayed for me too. I wish they would have prayed for me too. And Bo wasn't going to be a church intern. He wasn't going to go and be a summer missionary. He was going to Washington, D.C., where he now lives and works for a congressman. He was going to go there for his initial experience of working and being an intern for a representative in uh, the U.S. House. So he was going to go there and enter into these halls of immense power where people wielded all kinds of authority and they had the power to make decisions that were either transformative or destructive or maybe somewhere in between. And he would be interacting with these folks. And sure, he'd only be an intern, right? What all could he do? But 
he was still going to be with these people and in the office of these people and doing work for these people and getting a taste of what it would be like to eventually do what he does now to shape policy for our country. And yet, even though he was doing these things, we didn't pray for him. And so it got me thinking, who else did we leave out? Who else did we not pray for? So what about my friend who was going to go work at an art gallery and learn and craft um, her, her skill set at infusing beauty into our world? Or then what about my friend who was going to go shadow a doctor and learn about what it means to offer healing to people in holistic ways? Or what about my friend who was going to work for an accountant and learn how to help people uh, navigate and manage their money with integrity? The list goes on and on, right? There were so many people there who weren't church interns, who weren't summer missionaries, who weren't prayed for as they were going to go into the summers and do internships and all these sorts of things. Why didn't we pray for everyone? The service was implicitly saying that these fields, these, these jobs, being in a church and, and doing summer missions, those jobs were the work of God, and God was intimately involved in those occupations. But for the rest of folks... Maybe God wasn't so involved in those other jobs and those other occupations. So, you know, maybe perhaps Bo could find a job, I mean, uh, he could find a church while he was working in D.C., and that's where he could practice his faith. That's where he could follow the way of Jesus. That's where he could do things that Jesus calls us to do. But those 80 hours a week, sometimes more, that he would spend working in his representative's office, well, those weren't that important as far as faith is concerned. So Bo's comments... I wish they would have prayed for me too. It rattled around in my head and my heart, and I began to think, this view that we have of God, this way we're, we're treating God, is really small. It's really rigid and narrow, and it confines God to only a couple of uh, vocations, a couple of jobs, a couple of occupations, and it keeps God out of so many other things. But what if God is more expansive than that? What if God is way bigger than that? What if God is way more creative than that? And what if God is intimately involved in all of our jobs, in all of our occupations? What if God has a role to play in all of them? Surely, God is so creative that there are more ways to get involved with what God is doing in the world, more chances to be involved with what God is up to in our world than only vocational ministry or being a missionary. The question of, doesn't God care about all of our work? Doesn't God care about Bo's work? Doesn't God care about your work? There's a graph that's going to come up, and uh, from ages 22 to 65, if you regularly attend worship at Urban Village or another church, you will spend approximately 2,300 hours in worship in this space, in this time. And during that same time span, 22 to 65, you will spend about 105,000 hours at work. And I'm convinced, y'all, that God cares about those 105,000 hours. God has to, right? But the church has this sort of convoluted past with how the church has engaged faith and work. The church overall has really, if we're honest, done a pretty terrible job at engaging and talking about and empowering folks to live out their faith at work. Dorothy Sayers who's a 20th century novelist and the daughter of an Anglican priest, uh, expresses her frustration this way. How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of their life? How can anyone remain interested in a religion 
which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of their life. The question's haunting, and to put it another way, how can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern for those 105,000 hours? So this sermon series at Urban Village, over the next several weeks, we're going to be diving into the fact, the reality, the truth that God does care a whole lot about those hours. God cares a whole lot about our jobs and what we do and who we interact with and the products we make. But before we dive into some of the ways the church has failed and begin to construct and create a new way forward, I want to uh, say that this sermon series will be most of, mostly about occupations, about jobs. And we totally understand that vocation, who, who we're called to be, our, our purpose, all of those things are way bigger than one job, right? Those things are way bigger than our occupation, than what we do 8 to 5, or for some of us 8 to 8, or whatever it is. Uh, but... At the same time, we know that jobs, specific jobs, specific occupations, are rarely talked about in the context of church. And so we do want to dedicate this sermon series, this particular one, to our occupations and our jobs. And I also know uh, that some of you are in uh, tough seasons and difficult seasons of life where you either have the worst job you've ever had in your life, right? Some of you are like, yes. Or maybe you're looking for work and it's been a tough season of unemployment, and so know that we want to support you as a community, and if you're in one of those difficult seasons, we want to be there for you and do what we can for you and, and, and help you in any way. And you're also, uh, we'll talk a little bit later, I will, about how our identity is not rooted in our jobs and our work, and so uh, know that uh, you are known and loved uh, no matter what season you're in in life right now. And as we uh, launch into this sermon series, though, I thought it would be helpful if we get some framework, some context for how the church has done this conversation before, and so we know sort of what we're dealing with and how to create a way forward. And these two frameworks I'm going to talk about in a second were developed by my friend AJ, a pastor in New York, and they may be oversimplistic a little bit. I'm sure there's some nuance and there's a spectrum of ways the church has talked about faith and work, but I think they're helpful for us. So let's look at them. And the first is this control model. And so at the bottom, you see the small circles. Those are different occupational spheres, right? So business, education, arts and entertainment, social, science and technology, media, government, and medical. And uh, pretty much every uh, job or occupation is, can be found in one of those um, smaller circles. And so in the medieval days, the church cared about all of these, and they look different than they do now, right, these, these occupations. The church cared about all of these because the church controlled all of them. So we're in the control model. The church had all the power. The church could do whatever it want, wanted. The church was domineering. So uh, take art, for example. If we go to the Art Institute and look at art from this time, we will find some beautiful, breathtaking pieces, no doubt. But the interesting thing is, if we look at a lot of the art, most of it is a picture of a saint or a church or a Bible story. Right? Try it out. And why is this? Because the church dictated what was going to be painted or sculpted or drawn. And the church said, we have the money, we have the power, we're going to control it. So if you want to make money, then you have to do what we tell you to do. You have to do what we commission. We're going to control your job. We're going to control what you make. And now we know that the way of Jesus is never about coercion or forced control, though. So this model ultimately doesn't align with the person of Jesus. And plus, 
If you know many clergy, especially if you know me, you know you don't want people like me in charge of art because it would be really, really bad. I can't even draw a stick person. And uh, if you know, uh, if you've seen some of those like Kirk Cameron and Nick Cage movies about the rapture, the church, the church doesn't need to be any more involved in movie making than it already is, right? <laughs> Uh, but the church adopted this model primarily out of this like, obsession with power. we got to control this. It has to be our way or no way. We are going to tell everyone what to do. And so the, the control model was developed. But as the church's power started to wane and decrease, right, the church developed a new model. So they couldn't be in complete and total control anymore. And so the separation model uh, came into being. And this is one where the church taught that, essentially, your faith can be lived out in the confines of church over here, but the rest of these areas, your, your job, your occupation, your faith can't really be lived out in those areas. Not fully, at least. So the rest of your life was essentially void of God. Now, there are some ways to live out your faith in these spheres the church teaches in this model. For instance, you can evangelize, you can start Bible study, so those are two ways to live out your faith. And if you know me well, you know that I love evangelism. Right, Violet? Uh, I love evangelism. I love inviting people into the party. Um, and I love Bible study. I love the Bible. I love to read it and talk about it and dissect it and talk about the hard things that are in it, as Aaron's small group does. Uh, so I'm not against Bible study or evangelism. But I do think that there are more ways to live out our faith. God is more creative and has bigger ideas about how to live out our faith in those 105,000 hours than only evangelizing or starting a Bible study. Those things are great, but those aren't the only ways. This model, I think in a lot of ways, wasn't real purposeful. In some ways, it was sort of accidental. Um, so the church didn't mean to say, God is never here, God is only here. But what the church does through its practices and we'll discover it's rooted in deeper theology. But what the church does through its practices, when you do things like, we're going to pray for the missionaries, we're going to pray for the interns, but you don't pray for anyone else, what does that say, right? The safe assumption is that God isn't involved in those other occupations, at least in the same way that God is involved in those other two, and maybe a few more. But this, this separation model didn't just spring up. It's rooted in some, some theology that's sort of problematic and some theology that's, that's not that great and that's concerning. And this theology is it's a, it's a powerful dualism that operates within Christianity often. And it's this dualism that the body and the material world are bad and the spiritual world is good. And so the interesting thing is we didn't get this from Jesus. Jesus didn't teach this. We didn't get this from Hebrew scriptures, from the Old Testament. We got this from Greek philosophy that was popular when our faith was beginning to um, spring up and develop. And the Greeks believed that involvement with the material world sort of pulled us down and made us less than. It made us profane. It brought us into some like animal-like existence kind of stuff. And one should aim for total freedom from the material world, total freedom from body and from matter, the physical stuff of the earth. Our bodies and the physical world around us, they're all sort of gross. But this idea that we can separate the spiritual and the physical is actually a false idea, and it disregards our entire Christian narrative. Because our faith is not one that draws hard lines between the physical and the spiritual. Our faith is one that, uh, that emerges, that integrates the two. 
that views everything as spiritual. The Hebrew language doesn't even have a word for spiritual. And so if we were to go up to Jesus and be like, hey, Jesus, how's your spiritual life? Jesus would be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) There's not even a word for it. Because to label one thing spiritual is to do what? To label everything, the things, other things as not spiritual. To label one thing spiritual is to say that other things are not spiritual or not of God, or at least not of God as much as the other thing. But the truth is that God is in the midst of it all, interwoven with it all. Everything is spiritual. And Jesus offers us the clearest proof, the clearest example, the clearest picture that God cares about all of life, not only the things that we deem, quote, spiritual. For the ancient Greeks, gods are immaterial and ultimate ideas, and they would never be so profane as to uh, get, as become 100% human. But yet, uh, the God of the Hebrew people comes as a baby boy, 100% human, flesh. And despite songs like Silent Night, God came crying and pooping and all those things. God is 100% human. God didn't restrict God's self to some heavenly upstairs realm that we can never get to and can never see and stay there. Instead, God chose to self-reveal God's self on this earth in fleshly, earthly elements. And when God was here as Jesus, 100% human, Jesus interacted with people, other people. Jesus ate good food. Jesus fed other people. Jesus touched people. Jesus healed bodies. Jesus challenged earthly systems. Jesus cared about what was going on, the physical, material. Jesus cared about matter, what was happening here. Resurrection, another example, the resurrection of a body, right? God cares about bodies. And this new world that's coming to be, this new world that Jesus inaugurated, the coming and and the already but not yet kingdom of God, it's not going to be some abstract place with no real matter, but it's going to be a physical world where God gets everything God wants, as Aaron says about the kingdom of God. It will be a real place with real matter because God is not neutral when it comes to the physical world. God is pro-matter. God is pro-human. And this theology, this, this claim, this truth has all sorts of implications for us. Because if God cares about the real world, then God cares about how we treat our environment, right? And we're doing a lot of things to destroy it. And God causes us to wake up to that and live differently. If God cares about the real world, if God cares about bodies, and that is the driving force behind the fact that this church stands in solidarity and proclaims that black lives matter, even when we live in a country that proclaims often otherwise. This theological truth has a lot of implications for how we operate and how we live. Because God cares about stuff. God cares about bodies. That's why we stand for justice and try to, as Shauna was talking about earlier, while we stand for, for, for fair wages and while we stand to fight racism in this, in this city especially. Today, though, we want to hone in and focus in on the fact, the implication of this truth, that because matter, because stuff matters to God, all work matters to God. Not only work in a church. Because God doesn't care only about my work as a pastor at UIC. God cares about all of your work and whatever you do because work is how we live out God's call to tend and take care of and renew the earth. Biblical scholar N.T. Wright says this. The quote is on, on here. 
what we do in the present. Painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, all of those things will last into God's future. Such activities are all a part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. Get this, our work is not in vain because we are accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Our work matters. And we see God's value for work and matter in the person of Jesus. We see it clearly there, but we also see it from the very beginning. And so uh, this morning, we are, are focusing in on Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And Genesis tells all these wonderful and beautiful and messy and weird um, stories about all sorts of things and about the, the, the coming to being of our world. And in the first two chapters of Genesis, we find two distinct creation narratives, two stories that talk about uh, the beginning of our world as we know it. And these are primeval stories about how God created the earth. It's, 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 it's poetry. It's, it's not science, but it's this beautiful narrative about the creation of our world. And in these stories, God's creative activity, the way that God fashions things, is described as skilled labor. Hebrew word, skilled labor. So in Genesis 1, the first creation account, we have God speaking things into being and things coming to be, right? Let there be light, and there's light. Let there be all sorts of creatures, and there are creatures. Let there be humans, and there are humans. And then God looks at all of it, the vast creation that God has just made, all of it together, and calls it very good. And that's this poetic piece in Genesis 1. And then Genesis 2, we get a little bit of a different picture of God, of God's creation. And as God getting sort of down and dirty with creation, we have a God who creates everything, and the way God creates humans is really interesting. Uh, God takes mud, dirt. Uh, I told the first service, like when in Mississippi, I'm from Mississippi, we like jump in ponds and like our, our, our knees get like mud goes all the way up to our knees, right? Anyone else have that experience? Okay, some of like two of you, good. The rest of you grew up in Chicago. Uh, and so you get like real like nasty kind of mud. I picture a guy like taking that kind of stuff and scooping it up and fashioning humans and breathing life into humans, and humans come awake like Frankenstein or something. It's this like weird but physical. God takes the physical matter of the earth and creates with it, and God is creating the physical stuff. So God doesn't think it's all bad. God made it. It's good. Physical stuff matters to God. Matter matters to God. And then we have our passage today, which acts sort of like a summary statement of the two creation accounts, even though it comes in the middle of them. And it's uh, God creating, God resting, God giving humans the privilege and the responsibility for, for taking care of God's prized creation. So God creates this vast thing and calls it very good and then says, here, be co-creators with me. Here, help me tend to this new thing that I have created. Here, come and participate with me. Play with this stuff with me. And I can tell you that if I were in charge, I would never do that. <laughs> if I were in charge, I would want to keep control of it. I would have my grip so tight on everything, no one would be able to help me out with it. It would be all mine, and I would micromanage everything. But God does the exact opposite. God invites us to be part of this ongoing creation with God. God invites us to be ongoing co-creators in this new dynamic and 
open and amazing and ongoing creation because God left untapped potential in the created world when God created it. And God says there's more to do, there's more growth to happen, and there's change to happen, and there's evolution to happen. And and from the very beginning, God invites us into that work. And so we're not just like humans like laying out at the sandal spa, right, from the beginning. That's not all we do. We're given opportunities to rest, and that's beautiful. But we're also given this vital and and important and life-giving and meaningful work to help God take care of this thing that God has created. Tim Keller describes our role this way. He's a pastor in New York City, and he developed a lot of this faith and work language. Uh, He was a pastor in New York City. His folks were working, you know, 80, 100 hours a week. And he said, we have to talk about how faith and work interact. He says this, We are not to relate to the world as park rangers, whose job is to not to change their space, but to preserve things as they are. Nor are we to pave over the garden of the created world to make a parking lot. No, we are to be gardeners, who take an active stance toward their charge. They do not leave the land as it is. They rearrange it in order to make it most fruitful, to draw the potentialities for growth and development out of the soil. They dig up the ground and rearrange it with a goal in mind, to rearrange the raw material of the garden so that it produces food, flowers, beauty. And that is the power for all of work. The purpose, the, where am I? That is the pattern for all of work. It is creative and assertive. It is rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular, thrive and flourish. God worked and God charges us to work. Work didn't come about as some punishment. Work didn't come about to make it hard for us. God worked for the sheer joy of work from the beginning, and God invites us to work for the sheer joy of work too. Work is meaningful, and work can give us life, and in a couple of weeks we're going to talk about sometimes work can just suck, right? Some of you, like, none of this stuff is speaking to me because work just blows. I get it. Work can be bad, but work at its core is meant to be meaningful and life-giving and to give us deep satisfaction and delight. God created, and it was joyous, and called it good. And God invites us into that same process, that same creative work, to use skilled labor to do things, to rearrange things, to take the matter God created and called good and to create something new with it. Work is good. This may be a little bit of a stretch or maybe too silly example for some of you, but I'll give it anyway. Uh, Imagine that you're going to a potluck. Laura probably goes to potlucks a lot. And you're going to a potluck, and uh, there's a a different, she's like a potluck kind of person. (laughs) There's a a difference. Laura always sits in the front row, and it's always fun to interact with her. It's great. There's um, a difference a little bit, right? If you go to a potluck, and you get on Pinterest, and you look up like that really great new recipe, and you go, and you're like, I can make this, even though it rarely turns out like it does in a picture. That's beside the point. You go to the, the store, you get the ingredients, all the fresh ingredients, you're like, I'm going to make something really good for this party. You go home, you make it, you cook it for several hours, it takes some time, it takes some work, and you bring it to the party, and everyone loves it, right? Everyone's like raving about your dish. Like, did you taste that stuff that Laura made? Because it was awesome. Like, everyone wants it, and it disappears really quickly, and you feel good about it. Like, I put work into this. I put time into this. I put effort into this, and it feels good that you made it, and you get a satisfaction from it, and it helps other people, right? It enables other people to enjoy the party more. 
That's what work is like for us. We're working for the common good. We're doing something and it makes us feel good. There's a difference between doing something like that versus like, oh, I got that party. I didn't I ran out of time. I guess I'll go to Jewel and like buy a pack of Oreos. Like that's a little bit of your thing. No shame if you're the Oreo person. Uh, I know some of you are. I, I was hoping Ty McCarthy would be here because he always buys Oreos for uh, UVC parties. But at this last party we had a couple months ago, he decided to make an Oreo cake. And he, it was like a real deal, and he was really proud of it. And I'm sure if, we, if he were here, he would give him better satisfaction to, to make the Oreo cake than to bring the Oreos. So work can be a delight, and it's meant to be a, a delight. And in an urban area like Chicago, though, we need to talk about something, is that a lot of times, and this is in other places too, but it's especially loud in urban areas, that we are tempted, and sometimes taught, a lot of times taught, that we need to get our full identity through our work. That our work is the thing that creates our identity that we need to prove ourselves through our occupation. And we find ourselves bragging about being overworked and we're trying to forge our identity through our jobs, but we must be aware, and this is key, that we are not meant, we're not created to achieve our identity through work. Rather, we are to express our identity through our work. So in the same way, God expressed God's identity through the creation that God made. God was already good and creative and all these things and dynamic before God ever created the world. God didn't need to create it in order to prove God's identity. In the same way, we don't work in order to prove our identity. We are made in the image of God and worthy to be loved before we ever do anything. We are made in the image of God and worthy to be loved. Check the text in Genesis. Before we're charged with work, we're created and loved. And so our identity is deeply rooted in the fact that we are a beloved child of God and nothing else, not even our occupation. And that's hard to believe sometimes. I know it is, but it's true. So we're more than our jobs. And yet, and yet, our jobs can be powerful ways for us to express our identity, to express our gifts, to express our creativity, to express who we are at our core. If God is pro-matter and pro-work, y'all, then we have to have a new sort of model for talking about this, right? Because the control model earlier is not the way of Jesus. To control and coerce and to dominate and to dictate, it's not what Jesus is about. And then we have the separation model that is also not congruent with our faith because it's rooted in this false dichotomy. So we need a model that will look more like this one, an empowering model one that empowers us to integrate all of our life, that lifts us up and launches us out into our jobs, whatever they are, whatever we do. Seriously, whatever we are, whatever we do. Take a carpenter, for example. In the control model, the church dictates to that carpenter what she can make, right? And so it's like, all right, you have to make what I tell you to make, what we tell you to make. So get busy making like communion tables and pulpits and music stands. Well, Carpenter doesn't make music stands, but you get the picture. Only do what we tell you to make. And then in the separation model, it's a little different, but it said, okay, go be a carpenter, go make your stuff, go do whatever you want to do. But really, you can only follow Jesus. You can only be a person of faith. You can only act in the way of Jesus in the church and in the ministries we have. So go do your carpentry thing, that's fine. But, and maybe you can invite some people back to the church, that kind of thing. But really, what you're doing doesn't matter all that much. But the empowering model says this to a carpenter. 
Go and make the best tables you can make. Go and express your creativity and God-given talents and your DNA. Do it, and do it for the good of others. And make it the best thing possible because there's something powerful about making a table where people will share meals or making chairs where intimate, intimate conversation will happen or making a picture frame that holds a beautiful work of art and inspires a whole room and infuses a room with beauty. All of these vocational spheres are ways that in the 21st century we can tell and tend the earth. And God cares about all of these things because God created all matter and God is involved in all of it and invites us to help manage and steward it all. God created it all and God is in it all and the church plays this role, we should play this role of empowering all of us to go out and to be able to integrate our full lives, to live out, we talk about it every week, our, one of our key values is relevant, that this is not the main event that this is not the only place where we live out our faith. But our goal here is to empower people, empower all of us, so that we are living out our faith Monday through Saturday, as we always say, and not just on Sunday mornings. And Monday through Saturday, especially Monday through Friday, for a lot of us, the majority of our time is spent at work. So we have to figure out how do we have a relevant faith and how do we live this stuff out in, in powerful ways in our jobs. And that's going to be our task over these next four weeks of the sermon series and beyond. Our task of discovering and unpacking some of these themes and concepts and figuring out how do we live a life of faith at our work? How do those 105,000 hours, how, does God, how is God involved in them? God is. But today, as we close, I want to bring up three different areas that we can think about uh, for immediate impact. And we can ask ourselves, how do we have opportunities with these three areas to uh, impact um, other people and the products we create and the policies we're a part of. Uh, depending on what field you're in and what position you have, you, you may be involved in different levels of these, but everyone has access to at least one of these things. The three Ps, they're easy to remember. Uh, I told the first service, too, that I'm a Baptist, and so Baptists are notorious about alliteration, and so I'm just like living into my true identity here. Uh, people, products, and policies. Uh, people. How do you love people? Do you treat your coworkers and your customers and anyone you interact with, do you tr treat them as created in the image of God and worthy to be loved as every person is? Every single person, no matter what. You treat them that way. Products. What products are you creating or helping to create or being a part of a team that creates? What is the cultural influence of them? What kind of culture are they creating in our world? What's the environmental impact? How are they uh, using resources, and is it in a sustainable way? Are you entering into those conversations, if you're a part of them, in, in ways that promote human flourishing? Or for the last one, policy. If you are a part of, of teams that make decisions, are you working for things like um, uh, equal, equal pay and just working conditions in your workplace? If you're a part of boardrooms, are you making sure that boardrooms put people first before profit and other things? These are three ways to start thinking about how you integrate faith and work. One of my spiritual gurus, Richard Rohr, um, whom I love, says that our growth in, as humans is often a growth in seeing. 
It's a new way of seeing, a way of opening our eyes wider to what's around us. And I encourage us all to begin seeing in new ways, in fresh ways, the work that we do, especially in these three areas, and seeing in new ways the ways that God is already intimately involved in what we're doing. So what does it look like to experience a growth in seeing? Uh, John Coltrane was a jazz musician and one of the most uh, renowned and famous um, saxophonist in music history. And he was the winner of a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. His picture's up here. He won a special Pulitzer Prize. His music, if you listen to it, I encourage you to go do it at home. It's on YouTube and, and such. It's provocative and it's political and it's inspiring and it stirs you, at least it does to me. And Coltrane spent many of his years uh, sort of being successful for the sake of success, especially many of his early years. And he said, if I get really good, if I'm successful, if people applaud and appreciate me, then, then I'll know that I'm significant. I'll know that my life is worth something. But 10 years before his death, Coltrane had this powerful experience. Hear about it in his own words. During the year 1957, I experienced by the grace of God a spiritual awakening which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. And at that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music, to inspire them to realize more and more of their capacities for living meaningful lives, because there certainly is meaning to life. I feel this has been granted through His grace through God's grace. Coltrane had an experience of God's grace. God's grace touched him in a deep and powerful, provocative way. And he became aware that he was made in the image of God and worthy to be loved. He became aware that he was known and loved and it transformed his entire life and it transformed the way that he did his work of making music. And he made some music with spiritual themes, yes, but he didn't just start stamping Christian on all of his stuff. He just made damn good music. Go listen to it. It is good. And that experience of grace, it made him create these things that were going to provide meaning for other people to infuse our world with beauty and creativity. He made music not for the applause sake anymore, but he began making music for the music's sake. He began making music for the listener's sake, for our sake. He began making music for God's sake. And that's what it looks like to open our eyes and to see the way that God is already a part of and wants us to recognize that God is a part of our work. He saw his work with new eyes. Friends, you, each of you, you are created in the image of God and worthy to be loved. Your identity is not in your work, although work can be an expression of that. But take that in for a second. Breathe it in that you created in the image of God and worthy to be loved. Let it sink deep into who you are. And may that truth sink deeply. May that truth inspire you to work creatively in all sorts of ways. May that truth infuse your work with meaning. Open your eyes. God is all over the place. Let you join God in what God is already up to. Amen.